The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, Fathom. If we haven't met yet, my name is Eric Shelley. Um, Like Kyle said and Chris said, I'm one of the elders here at the church. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room or those tuning in uh, online. Thank you for all you do to love and lead your family. Hope you feel celebrated and respected uh, today. Uh, Let's, will you pray with me as we get started here? Uh, God, thank you for this morning and thank you for bringing us here this morning. Um, God, and and amidst all the the distraction that that life brings us, Lord, I just pray that for the next next span of time that we can focus on you, that we can put aside all the things of this afternoon or um, this past week and and, and just look to you. And Lord, may the the words that I speak, the things that we think be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm not a native of Colorado. Like many people who live out in Colorado, I'm a transplant. I moved out here from Pennsylvania about 20 years ago after I graduated college. And one of the reasons that I moved out here was to ski. And so in my early 20s, I did a lot of skiing, which meant I spent a lot of time on Interstate 70 in ski traffic. And along I-70, they, they've got these big digital signs with messages on them. And I began noticing how in driving the ski traffic that traffic would always start to slow up and start to back up right around these, these signs or right before these signs. And, and I never felt that the signs said anything all that helpful. It was usually something like, icy conditions exist, drive with care. And I always thought to myself, well, duh, we're in the Rocky Mountains in January at 8,000 feet. Of course it's going to be icy. But it always seemed like people would read the signs and think, oh, it's icy right here, so I'm going to slam on my brakes, and it would cause backups. And I'd kind of get annoyed at, at CDOT because they were just sort of stating the obvious, but in doing so, they, it seemed like they were actually causing more traffic backups, more distractions. More recently, CDOT and other transportation services in in other states have started a sign and a billboard campaign that's focused on distracted driving. And so they'll they'll put up these these witty or these clever signs warning people about distracted driving. It'll say something like, hocus pocus, drive with focus, or texting and driving leads to the dark side. And and there are these um, kind of these these clever signs, but I kind of feel similar to to this as I did with the winter driving sign is that I kind of question the methods here a little bit. Like it's, it's a bit ironic that they're warning you about distracted driving, yet they're putting up a sign that kind of distracts your driving. It's maybe good intentions, but maybe not the best approach. Um, I read a study by AAA that stated there's three main sources of driver distraction, and the first two are, are somewhat obvious. The first is visual distraction, and that's, that's taking your eyes off the road. And then the second is manual Distraction, which is taking your hands off the wheel, and so these are these are caused by by things. I mean, our cell phones are the are the biggest culprit, right? You know, if you're texting or you're looking up directions or maybe you're using the Fathom app while you're driving, um, they, they can be a distraction. And and listen, we want you to use the Fathom app, listen to sermons, listen to podcasts online. Just don't maybe don't not navigate it while you're driving, um, so you don't distract yourself. But adjusting the radio, adjusting the heat, the AC, that can all be um, cause distraction. Kids in the back seat can cause distraction. If you're one of those people that drive with your dog on your lap, you're probably distracted. Uh, so there's lots of things that can cause distraction that can pull our eyes or our hands away while we're driving. But the third source of distraction uh, in, this, in this study is, is a little bit harder to, to kind of study or quantify. And this source of distraction is cognitive distraction. 
It's, it's a distraction that takes your mind off the task. And so your eyes may be on the road and your hands can still be on the wheel, but if your mind is someplace else, you're still distracted. You're still a distracted driver. Cognitive distraction can, can play itself out in several, several ways. It'll increase your reaction time. So you may be slower to brake or slower to swerve when you need to. You might miss some cues like an, a, a turn signal or a changing, a changing red light. Or you're, you kind of get tunnel vision. And so you're, you're looking ahead, but you're, you're, not, you're, you're not focused on the thing on, in your periphery and, and things like that. And so you can get, there's lots of ways that cognitive distraction can still distract us. Very early on when, when Ann and I were dating, I think it was our second date. Uh, I picked her up. We were, we were driving someplace for dinner. And I was so engaged in the conversation. I, I was trying to do such a good job of listening to her, of, of getting to know her, of paying attention to her, that I drove right through a red light. And thankfully, it was on kind of a side road. It wasn't a major intersection, so um, it didn't cause an accident. No one was hurt, but I blew right through the thing. And I didn't even realize it until sometime later she, she told me about it. Um, <laughs> thankfully, she was willing to overlook my distracted driving and go on a third and, and fourth, fourth day with me. So even, even talking, even good conversation can be, be a source of distraction, especially when it's a, a pretty girl that you're talking to. You can, get, you can get easily distracted to. Good things can cause distraction. And distractions are a real issue in our faith as well. Similar to distracted driving, distraction can come in, in, in forms in and of themselves that may not be bad. Like, it's not, it's not a, a bad or dangerous thing to listen to music or to listen to a podcast while you're driving. It's, it's not dangerous to talk with your kids or parent, parent your kids while you're driving. Sometimes that's, that's the best time to, to have those conversations with them. It's not dangerous to have good conversations when you drive, but if it distracts you from the main goal, which is to get where you're going safely, then it, it can be an issue and it can be a bad thing. And similar things can happen in our faith. We can get distracted from things that aren't necessarily bad or sinful, but they can distract us from, from our main focus, which is, is to be Jesus Christ. And so we can be so distracted by so many things that we miss Jesus entirely. And that's what Jesus focuses on here in the first part of this passage. It's, it's distracted, distraction. And that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today. I, I call this sermon Distracted Driving. So let's turn to our passage today. We're, we're uh, in the book of Matthew. You can grab a Bible, Bible under your chair. Um, you, you can bring it up on an app. We don't necessarily care what form of Bible you use, but we do want you to have the, the passage open in front of you and read it on your own. We're in Matthew 11. If you're using the Bible under your chair, page 816 is where we'll be. And as you're turning there, I just want to set some context for you. In last week's passage uh, in Matthew 11, we read the account of some of the disciples of John the Baptist coming to Jesus. And they basically asked Jesus on John's behalf. They said, you know, are you the guy? Are you the guy that, that John has been pointing to and, and has been talking about all this time? And I love Jesus' response to them. He, he tells them, well, tell John what, what you've seen and what you've heard, that, that the, the good news is being preached to the poor, that the blind are being healed, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, they're being healed, the dead are being raised. And so Jesus kind of like puts it back on them and, and he wants them to make a decision for, on, the, on their own. For, he wants us to decide for ourselves. He knows that's the best way for us to have trust and belief in him is to decide, decide on our own. And so Jesus turns from talking to these disciples and he turns to the crowds around them and he uses John as his teaching topic. And he, he essentially says that John is, is the greatest prophet there is. He's, he's a modern day Elijah, but the Jewish people are, are rejecting John just as they're rejecting Jesus. 
Jesus calls them childlike. He says that they're not easily impressed or satisfied. And the illustration here is of, of uh, the spoiled kid with all the newest and best toys and with, with video games to play with and an iPad to watch movies on and a brand new bike. Yet they come up to their parents and they say, I'm bored. They're spoiled. And that's, that's, that's how Jesus is describing the crowds. That's how he's describing this generation's this generation. He's, he's saying that um, they have both John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and Jesus walking among them, but they're still not impressed. They, they thought they, they knew better. They, they thought there was more. They thought they, thought they, were, they were wiser and smarter. And they, they, they kind of sound like today's generation, right? Uh, every, everyone kind of thinks they're wise and they, and they know they're ready to critique the smallest thing. But this is who Jesus is speaking to and talking to as we step into this passage today. It's this, this kind of spoiled brat of a generation that's not impressed by anything. And so Jesus has some strong and hard words for them. He's got some woes for them. So start reading in verses 20 through 24 of Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And I love what Matthew does here. Like he just lays out, here's a summary of, of what this paragraph is about. He just kind of says, this is what Jesus is doing. Here's, here's why he's doing it. Um, let's keep going in verse, verse 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the of Sodom than for you. Now, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were all Jewish cities there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus called some of his disciples from these towns. He spent lots of time in these towns. He'd done many miracles in these town, towns. But he says, woe is you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, because these, these towns, they had miracles. Jesus did miracles in them. He had, they had the Messiah walking their streets and preaching the good news. But they're, they're missing him entirely. They're, they're refusing to repent. And he says that, that Tyre and Sidon, these pagan and Gentile cities far to the north of the Sea of Galilee, he says, these cities have a better chance to repent and believe than these Jewish cities where Jesus is walking. And then there's Capernaum. And Jesus saves some specific grievances for Capernaum. You see, Capernaum was like Jesus' home base for his ministry. Of the 10 miracles that Matthew talks about in chapters 8 and 9 of, of the book of Matthew, half of them were done in Capernaum. Capernaum had so much opportunity to witness Jesus and turn from its sin and repent, but it hadn't. So Jesus saves an extra strong woe for Capernaum. He contrasts them against the most notoriously bad and sinful city in the Old Testament, which was Sodom. Sodom was, Sodom was sin city in the Old Testament. It was so wicked that God destroyed it. And Jesus says that if he performed the same works in Sodom that he did in Capernaum, that Sodom would have repented and not been destroyed. And I think there's something important here for us. I missed it the first few times I read this passage. Jesus is distinguishing between two types of cities, repentant cities and unrepentant ones. He's not distinguishing between Jewish and Gentile cities. He's not distinguishing between geography. He's not distinguishing between sinful and non-sinful cities or even the level of sin. Because all cities, all the cities were sinful, but rather he's pointing out that some of the cities would repent and turn from their sin and others wouldn't. 
The cities that he said would be repentant are Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. And we'll call these, we'll call these sin cities. The cities that, that are unrepentant are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And we'll call these the unrepentant cities. And what he's saying here is that the unrepentant cities have the greater sin and the greater woe because they're unrepentant. The woe to them is greater than to the, the sin cities. Even though the sin cities were living in idolatry and prostitution, luxury and greed, self-indulgence, drunkenness, sexual immorality, Jesus is saying that if those sin cities, the ones in, indulging in all that sin, he's saying, if I preached there, they would have repented. They'd repent of their sin and the moral wrong that they've been doing. But you Jewish cities, you're too distracted to even repent. You may be living a moral Jewish life, you're checking all the religious boxes, but you're unrepentant. And that's, that's the bigger issue in Jesus' eyes. And that's the gospel idea for us here, church. The idea that repentance from sin is more important than what our sin was. Jesus doesn't seem to care about how sinful the city is or was, but rather how repentant the city is and will be. And so in our terms, it doesn't matter what your sin is or was, or what stigma society may place on that sin, all sin separates us from God, no matter what it is. What matters is if you repent of it and if you turn away from it. That's what repent means. Repent means to turn away. So ultimately, you won't do those things any longer. You'll be, you'll be working to turn from your sin. But it's still better to have lived in sin city and repent than to live a religiously good life, but live it in distracted unrepentance. And so Christians, this should get our attention because we're the one Jesus is talking to here. We're the ones who may be too distracted with being Christians to repent of our sins. And Jesus doesn't address what the sins of these sin cities were. We, you know, we've got commentators and historical accounts that kind of outline them for us. We know what they were, but, but Jesus doesn't speak to the specific sins here. And I think he does that intentionally because, because it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jesus knows the hearts and knows that if the, uh, the gospel was preached in those cities, that they would repent of their sins, whatever the, whatever the sins were. He knows the unrepentant hearts of the unrepentant cities. He knows that they're, they're so busy going to temple and worshiping and tithing and offering sacrifices and keeping the Sabbath and keeping all their religious customs and rituals. And all the while, they're missing Jesus and missing the chance at repentance. They're too busy and distracted with being religious to be repentant. And so in this section, Jesus is calling us away from whatever it is that has been distracting us. Maybe like the Jews in Jesus, that Jesus is talking to, we're distracted from religious rules and from legalism. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a church where religion or faith is more about following rules than about following Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you came from a church where your faith was entirely about how you acted or what you did and not about what you believe in or who you believe in. Maybe you're just like the Jews of Jesus' day and you need to hear that Jesus has a better way for you. That he is more important than what you do or what you have done. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe it does come from sin though. And, and not the type of sin where you, where you slip up once and you do something wrong or sinful, but, but the type of sin that's become a lifestyle. Who you're living with, who you're sleeping with, what you eat or drink or smoke, what you watch on TV, how you handle money, how you treat the poor or the widow next door or your gay coworker. An ongoing lifestyle 
involving sin can so easily distract us. Or maybe the distraction for you is your career or your job. And that's the thing that you have that tunnel vision for, that you're so focused on. Trying to get ahead, trying to get the next promotion or get that raise or make enough money to where you finally feel content and secure. And you're so focused on that that it distracts you from everything else. Or maybe the distraction is who you're dating and, and, and dating and finding that right person, someone that you could eventually marry. Maybe that gets your time and your focus and your energy. Or maybe the distraction is your family, raising your kids, raising good and healthy and well-rounded kids is the most important thing to you right now. And that, 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 goes at, that comes at the expense of everything else. Or maybe your marriage, maybe your spouse is the most important thing to you right now. And that, that gets all of your focus. Distractions can come from lots of places, not, not just religion or religious legalism. And a lot of those places aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. Church and jobs and kids and spouses, they're all good things. But if they're the things or the only things, and if they get in the way of us seeing Jesus and coming to him in repentance, then they can be a distraction that's just as deadly as, as sending that text message while you're driving. And so when I call this sermon Distracted Driving, these are the types of distractions I was thinking of and re referring to. They're, they're the things in life that we put in front of Jesus or ahead of Jesus. They're the things in life that, that take our eyes or our minds or our focus off of Jesus. And sometimes we'll call them idols. Sometimes we call it legalism or works or, or lots of other terms that are getting at the same thing. We get distracted by them and, and, and we don't focus on Jesus. Let's keep moving through, through our passage. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. In verse 25, we read, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here, here Jesus is praying, and this is, this is a prayer of thanks, but it's also a prayer of teaching, because Jesus prayed this in the presence of, of the disciples, and so he wanted them to hear this also. And, and there's, there's a lot going on in, in these three verses. I could probably preach a full sermon on just these three verses. Um, we're looking to cover a larger passage, so uh, I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time on these. I'm going to pull out three key points for you, however. The first appears in verse 26, and the main point here is that it's God's will and sovereignty that decides who is saved. In other words, it's not the words of the preacher or the evangelist or what you do or you don't say to your neighbor that results in someone coming to Christ. It's God's gracious will revealed through his son. Only through God's will does someone come to know God. And this, this echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So people are saved because of God's will alone. Not anything that I say or Pastor Chris or Matt Chandler or Tim Keller or anyone else, not anyone, anything anyone else says, it's God's will alone that determines this. And the second point here is from verse 27, which tells us that as God's equal, it's Jesus who reveals God to man. The Father and the Son are mutually and exclusively known to each other. And so similar to our first statement, if the Father does not choose and the Son does not reveal the Father, then there will be no salvation for the sinner. Jesus has all authority to reveal God to us. 
It's Jesus who has authority to reveal God to man. And at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, Jesus affirms this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's, it's Jesus who has authority to reveal God to man. Again, these are some big kind of high-level theological concepts. I don't have the time to fully unpack them today, uh, but I do want to focus on a third concept that Jesus prays in this section. In, in verse 25, Jesus says, Thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, Jesus says, it's not the, it's not the wise, the educated, or the religious that the Son will reveal the Father to. Because they're too busy being wise, educated, and religious to even notice. They're, they're too distracted. The Son will reveal the Father to those who are like children, to those who approach their faith like children. I think too often, kids get a bad rap for having short attention spans. Now, it's, it's certainly true. Kids have very short attention spans. I have two daughters. One's eight and one's, one's 10. And when they're playing, they'll jump from one thing to the next. They'll start their morning doing some type of craft. And so they get their craft stuff out. And while doing that, they'll get the thought that, hey, we should build something with Legos. And so they'll pour all their Legos out and they'll start building Legos. And as they're doing that, they'll say, well, let's build something out of Legos for our dolls. And so they'll start playing dolls. They'll get all their dolls and their accessories out. And then they'll take those, they'll, they'll pretend to take their dolls on a walk to the parks. And so they'll go outside and by that time it's lunchtime and there's stuff all over our basement, all over our house and all over our backyard and they drop it all and they go eat lunch. And that's, that's usually when Ann and I kind of yell at them and, and start making them clean up, clean up their mess. And so kids certainly have very short attention spans, but here's what I've also noticed about kids. When they're focused on something, it gets 100% of their attention. They're completely focused on it. They're, they're all in. They don't get distracted like adults do. They don't, they don't multitask. Their attention may not be for very long, but while, they, while they're focusing on it, whatever they're doing, whatever they're learning, they're, they're all in on it. Back in May, my 10-year-old daughter, Kaylin, she was learning about electricity in fourth grade. And she was telling me what she learned. And she excitedly told me, Daddy, we watched this video in science about electricity. And a scientist had an electric eel in a tank. And he took a fake human arm with light bulbs in it. And he stuck it in the tank and, and for, the, for the eel to attack. And when the eel attacked it, electricity in the eel moved through the fake arm and made the light bulbs light up. And so I was listening to this. And I had several thoughts. The first is, how cool is God's creation that there's electric eels? Like, there are these eels that have electricity in them and God created. Like, that's just, that's just really cool. The second thing is, Who's this mad scientist that's training electric eels to attack humans? Like, why did he have to use a fake human arm to stick in the tank? Couldn't he use like a, I don't know, a fake fish or some, you know, some science tube with, with light bulbs in it to stick in the tank? Why was it a fake human arm? This, this guy's a little, a little sketchy. I'm not sure what, what he's uh, doing here. But third, it made me smile at how this video and this lesson on electricity had captured my child's attention and her curiosity and focus and excitement. She was, she was all in. She was completely focused on learning about this, and she was all in on telling me about it. That's how kids learn, when they, when they, and that's how they approach things. We as adults, we don't operate this way. We're, we're distracted. I might be talking with Ann about something, but my mind's still on something that happened at work earlier in the day. Or I might be listening to my daughter tell me about electric eels being trained to attack humans, and I'm also checking my phone or checking a score of a baseball game or, or, or sending out a text message. I might be driving, but I'm also bringing out my favorite playlist or reading a text message. As adults, we're wiser. We have longer attention spans, greater understanding, 
but we're also more easily distracted. We need, we need to focus like little children focus. Otherwise, we're in danger of missing Jesus. But as distracted adults, how do we focus? How do we put our energy and focus on Jesus like a child would? That's what the remainder of our passage is about. In verses 28 to 30, Jesus tells us how to focus on him. Let's, let's read those together. In verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So these verses are ones you may have heard before if you spend time around Christians or around the church. They're popular verses. If you go to Hobby Lobby or some, some Christian bookstores, you, you, you've probably seen them on some type of art that you can hang on your wall. Um, they're popular verses because they're comforting. Come to me. I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. These are, these are comforting and, and reassuring, right? They, they, they definitely are. Except for this one word that appears in here twice. Yoke. So yoke here is not referring to the yellow center of an egg. And it's not re referring to, to what happens when you work out a lot. Those are our Y-O-L-K. We're talking about a different kind of yoke, a farming or agricultural tool called a yoke, Y-O-K-E. Yokes are used to pair two oxen together while plowing or pulling something. And, and it allows the farmer to, to steer, steer both oxen together at the same time. It keeps them pointed in the same direction. It allows the two oxen to share a load together. I, I, read, I read that one ox by itself can, can largely pull its own body weight, but two together can pull three times their body weight, their total body weight. And so, in verses 28 to 30, Jesus is he's speaking about rest, but it's not the type of rest that we often think of. I've heard pastors use this, this passage to teach about Sabbath and about slowing down. And, and those are very important things for Christians to learn. It's, it's very important to keep a rhythm of rest and of Sabbath in our lives. But I don't think Sabbath rest is what Jesus is talking about here. He's not speaking about the once a week Sabbath rest from our work or our jobs. He's not talking about the, the vacation type of, of rest where we're, we're sitting on a beach with our toes in the water and a drink in our hand. And, and that sounds, sounds very, very great. sounds very restful. But Jesus mentions a yoke, which is a tool. And if he was talking about rest and relaxation, Sabbath and unwinding, I don't think he would talk about a yoke at all. A yoke's a tool for work. And the Bible, the Bible clearly explains that humans were created to work. We weren't created to rest, but we were created to work. Otherwise, the pattern in Genesis would not have been God resting on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. The Bible says six days of work, the seventh is a day of rest. It's not the other way around. And so Jesus, I think, is instructing us here, not in how to rest, but in how to work and in how to live and how to operate on a daily basis. He's not saying, hey, you who are, who are burdened and who labor and are heavy laden, you really shouldn't work so hard. You need a vacation and more rest. No, what he's saying is, he's saying, you who are burdened, come to me. Pair yourself with me as you work. Learn from me and it will go better and easier than what you're trying to do before. And so he gives us three instructions or commands here. He gives us three, three ways to overcome distraction and focus on him like, like a child would. And so let's look at these three. The first command is in verse 28. He says, come. 
He says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a people who are, they're burdened down and distracted by religion and by the religious and legalistic traditions of, of the Pharisees and, and the leaders that they impose all these, these religious burdens on them. And so Jesus is calling these people away from the religious legalism and distracted, and he's calling people to himself. He's saying, I know you've been working really hard to keep all of those laws and requirements. I know you're distracted and you're burdened. Come to me instead. Just, just come. Now, the thing about a yoke is that it only works if the two oxen are near to one another and facing the same direction. And so Jesus is calling us to come near to him and to stand next to him and, and to spend time with him, to walk alongside of him, to walk in the same direction he's going. He says, he says come to me. He asked for our focus to be on him. His simple command is to come. Next in verse 29, his second command to us is take my yoke upon you. First, he tells us to come to him, but here he tells us to take my yoke. And this is a, this is a deeper experience with him. This is, this is a harder experience. It's harder because it involves submission. Even if we come to the point where we want to take on Christ's yoke, where we may realize it's the best thing for us to do, that walking with Jesus yoked and tethered to him, that's, that, that's the best place for us to be. It's still, it's still hard because submission is hard. And putting on a yoke requires submission. And this, this makes me think of our dog, Jonah. And I've talked about Jonah before in some of my sermons. Jonah's a two-year-old black lab. He weighs about 90 pounds. And as a two-year-old, he's still very much a, a puppy. He's, he's kind of like a teenager. Um, but he, he, he's still a puppy. And that means that walking him sometimes can be an, an adventure. Because as a two-year-old, um, depending on what other dogs or other animals or people you encounter on your walk, he wants to check it, check it out. And, and he wants to check everything out. And he gets very excited about everything, everything that he encounters. And so if you're walking Jonah and he gets excited and decides he's going to pull and check something out, there's a good chance he's just going to pull you and, and, and you're going to go. Again, he's 90 pounds and it's, it's mostly muscle. But the solution that we found to the strong pulling is a pinch collar. And this is a, this is a collar that um, has got, it's got some prongs on it and so that when he pulls, it causes some discomfort. It doesn't choke him, but it just kind of pokes his neck a little bit and it causes enough dis discomfort that he'll stop pulling or he won't, he won't pull as hard. And now Jonah loves going for walks with us. In the mornings, like he'll run out to the door, his tail's wagging, he's ready to go. But he doesn't like, he doesn't like the, the collar. And, and so he'll see, me, he'll see me grab the collar and, he'll, and I'll turn to put it over his head and he'll pull away. He'll, he'll fight the collar. And you'd think he'd realize that the collar's a good thing for him because it allows him to go on a walk. You'd think he'd just submit and lower his head and take the collar and go on the walk, but he doesn't. I need to trick him with a treat to get, to get the collar on him. Even though it's in his best interest to do so, he fights submitting. Even though taking the collar upon himself means he gets to go on a walk, which gives him exercise and time with his master, and he gets to play and sniff and explore, despite getting to do all that, he still fights it because submitting is hard, even though it's good for him. And we're not all that different from Jonah when it comes to submission, are we? Even though taking on Christ's yoke means we get to walk with our master and we get to walk closely with him, it still requires submission. And so, and so we fight it, even though it's good for us. But Jesus asked for our submission. He asked us to take his yoke on. 
The third command that Jesus gives us is later in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so the third command is to learn from Jesus. Jesus tells us to come to him and then to take his yoke and finally to learn from him. And this is, this is a continuation of the yoke illustration. Um, I mentioned earlier that farmers, they, they use the yoke to link two oxen together because together they can pull more weight than they can individually. But another way that farmers use a yoke is to teach or to train a younger ox. So a stronger or older ox would, would help train the younger one to carry a greater load. The stronger ox would carry or pull most of the load until the weaker ox learns to pull its own weight. All the while, the weaker ox would walk alongside of the, the, of the stronger one and learn from it. It would learn how to wear the yoke, how to pull the load, how to walk in the straight path where the farmer wants it to go. The younger or the weaker ox would learn from the older, stronger, wiser ox and how to work, how to do what it was created to do. That's a concept that Jesus is teaching here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because Jesus knows it's not enough for him to give us a command and expect us to, to just get it and to, and to learn it right away. He knows that we need to walk with him. We need to walk alongside of him, observe him, listen to him so that we can learn from him, so that we can learn how to do what we were created to do. And I think this is a key to overcoming the distraction and the burdens that we face. On a daily basis, we're to walk with Jesus and learn from him. So on a daily basis, we're to be in scripture, in prayer, in meditation on scripture, in worship and adoration, in discipleship and relationship with other believers. And that's why, that's why regular church attendance is so important. It's why, it's why we stress, stress D groups so much. It's why, why practicing the spiritual disciplines that we learned about several months back, why those are so important because we face all kinds of distraction and burdens in life, whether they're religious distractions like the Jews faced in Jesus' day or whether they're the many distractions that, that life throws at us today. Distractions and burdens will come. They'll, they'll come and they'll, they'll keep us from doing what we were created to do. They'll keep us from our work. Unless we come to Jesus, unless we take his yoke, unless we learn from him. Now, as I was, I was prepping the sermon, I was thinking about a way to illustrate this. And, and here's, here's how I thought it might make sense. So this fall, Ann and I, we're going to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. We, uh, we got married in October of 2006 out here in Colorado. And as we got closer to our wedding day, my buddies and, and my groomsmen wanted to, to do something with me to celebrate. And they, they wanted to throw me some sort of bachelor party. But the, the stereotypical secular bachelor party, that wasn't an option. Um, there's, there's lots of stuff that I think are wrong with kind of the world's idea of a bachelor party. But I had friends flying out from, to Colorado from all over the country. And so I wanted to do something to celebrate with them, with them. And so I figured, what better way to prepare for marriage? What better day to, way to spend my last day as a single man than to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And so for my bachelor party, we went skydiving. And, and you can ask Anne after the service what she thought about that back then. Um, but the day before my wedding, me and a handful of my buddies, we drove up to Longmont and we put on harnesses and goggles. We flew in a small airplane up to about 18,000 feet and we jumped out. So if, if, you're, if you kind of grew up in the 90s, um, 80s and 90s, you might be picturing Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves in Point Break right now. That's kind of what I think of. Um, you know, they, they, they go up in this airplane, they, they, they jump out, and um, they're doing all these acrobatics in the air. They're like, they're like shaking hands in the air, and they land in a lake. Um, my, 
the, the scene from Point Break is not, not really what my skydiving experience was like. And, and don't get me wrong, the jump was awesome. I would do it again. Um, we might do it for our 15th wedding, wedding anniversary. Maybe, maybe not. Um, uh, it, it, it was great. Um, but it, it wasn't quite like it was in, in Point Break. They don't allow you to jump by yourself. You've got to go with an instructor, at least, at least for, for a few times until you know what you're doing. It's called a tandem jump. You go with an instructor. In a tandem jump, the instructor's attached to you. You're both wearing harnesses, and you're tethered together with carabiners and straps. And the instructor's strapped directly behind you, and they jump with you. You jump at the same time. And the instructor has several roles. The first, the first job that they have is, is to get you to jump. Because skydiving, it, it kind of feels real when you, when you pull up to the air, airport and, and you, you, you're on the ground, you're going over the instructions and the training, and you put the harness on. And then it really begins to feel real when you get in the plane, and the plane takes off, and the plane climbs, and it climbs. But at some point, they open the door, and you're standing there looking over Longmont. And that's when it really feels real. Because you realize, this door is open now, and I've got to jump. And so it was my bachelor party, and so I got to jump first. And I didn't want to be a wimp in front of my friends, and so I, I kind of pumped myself up, and I was like, all right, let's go, let's, let's do this. And I jumped pretty quickly. But my buddy RJ, he needed a little more coaxing. And so he needed the instructor to kind of talk him into it. And eventually, he didn't push him out, but he, he kind of jumped out with him. He, he got him out of the airplane. And so the first thing the instructor needs to do is to get the jumper to jump. Now, after you jump out of the plane, you, you free fall for a while. And, and this is, this is the, the wildest, it's the coolest part of the entire thing. It, it's it's kind of why you, why, you, why you skydive. You know, it, gives you, it gives you that terrifying, exhilarating rush. Um, you know, you're, you're, you jump out of an airplane, you're hurtling towards the earth. And then, you know, there's intense wind in your face. You're kind of looking around and see how fast you're moving. You're like level with clouds. It's, um, it's crazy. And, and then all the time you're remembering, I just jumped out of an airplane. It's it's crazy. That's all this is going through your mind. All this, um, like I said, fear and exhilaration. But meanwhile, the instructor's there. They're, they're still strapped to you. And they've got an altimeter on their wrist. And, and they need to make sure that amidst all the distraction and all the fear and all the excitement and all the things to look at and think about, all the exhilaration, amidst all that, their job is to make sure that you pull the cord. That's a imp- pretty important part because pulling the cord opens a parachute, which prevents you from reaching terminal velocity and slamming into the ground. The instructor's most important job is to make sure you pull the cord and make sure you pull it at the right time. Most first-time jumpers would be too distracted to do it right. So just at the right time, they tap on your shoulder and yell, pull. And so you pull the handle on the cord in your parachute and the parachute opens and your free fall stops. Now you're still falling, but just not at the, the insane speed that you were falling before. It's a slower, more controlled uh, descent. And this is kind of the fun part of the jump because you re- realize that you're not going to slam into the earth at 120 miles an hour anymore. And you kind of get to look around and enjoy the view and enjoy the descent and kind of, kind of enjoy what you just did. But the instructor's job is not finished. Because all the while that you're falling, the instructor's steering you. So they're, they're steering you back toward the airport. Just, you know, otherwise, you'll, you'll just end up somewhere on I-25 or something like that. They're, they're, they're taking you back to the landing field, which is just this big kind of round gravel sand place to land. They're getting you ready to land. They're, they're giving you instructions. They're steering you. They're telling you how to lift your feet and how to bend your knees so that you can land safely. And so you go through this entire experience with this instructor tethered to you, helping you 
teaching you, guiding you through the fear and the excitement, past the things to look at and distract you, past the th- and through the free fall and the smooth sailing and the landing. The instructor's there with you the entire time. And you see the parallel that I'm making here, right? You know, sure, it'd be, it'd be a blast of freedom to just pack your own parachute and put it on and, and go with some of your buddies and just jump out of a plane yourself. And there would be some incredible freedom in that at first until you get distracted or you forget something or you do something wrong or you make a mistake. Just like a first-time skydiver goes to an instructor to help them jump out of a plane, we can go to Jesus. After all, Jesus is calling us to come to him, to attach ourselves and our lives to him, to learn from him as he guides us and instructs us and steers us and helps us. Through all the fear and the excitement and the turbulence and the work, through it all. It's not, it's not a walk on the, on the beach. Jesus tells us that it's still going to be work, but when we're yoked to him, when we're tethered to him, when we've submitted to him, we're not giving up our freedom Rather, he's there to help pull the weight, to bear the burden, and to teach us. So he tells us, come to me. Take my yoke. Learn from me. And and my hope and my prayer this morning is is that you'll listen to him and that you'll respond. That you'll submit to him and put aside your desire to go your own way, to think you've found freedom, only to find more distraction and more to weigh you down and more to burden you. Instead, listen to him and respond to him. Jesus is calling us the, the weary, burdened, heavy-laden people that we are. And whether, whether you're a longtime Christian who's maybe been distracted for a long time by being Christian, or whether you're not yet a Christian and you've, you've just been distracted by all the world throws at you, Jesus is calling us to something better in him, to true freedom. He's calling us to a life free of religious burdens and distractions, to a life of learning from our Savior, to a walk that is easy and gentle and restful because it's a walk alongside of Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for bringing us here this morning. And God, I don't know what the morning has been like for people before they got here or what their weekend's been like or what what their past week has been like or what what next week is going to be like for people. But God, I'm sure there's going to be lots of distractions and lots of of stress and lots of things to think about and worry about and and distract us. And God, I'm thankful for a few moments this morning just to, to sit and focus on you. And God, I pray that we would take this focus on you this morning and take it with us into this week. And that, that God, we can each day, each morning, that we can, we can respond and, and hear your call to come to you and to yoke ourselves alongside of you and to learn from you on a daily basis. And so God, whether someone this morning has been a Christian for a long time or for all their life, Lord, they're, they're still distracted. They still, they still face distractions each day. And so God, I pray that they, they would respond to this call, that they would, they would take steps to, to come alongside of you in, in your word and in, in meditation on your word and scripture and in prayer. And they would, they would yoke themselves to you that way. And God, maybe there's someone that's, that's listening online or watching online or someone that's here in this, in this room and, and they're not a Christian and, and they, they, they don't know what, um, what religious burdens are like but they do know what distractions and and life's burdens are like. And so maybe they've been distracted by that. And God, I pray that maybe for the first time this morning, they would come to you. 
And they would see what it means to walk alongside of you and, and, and link themselves and tether themselves to you. Lord, I pray they would, they would do that and they can begin to learn from you and see the freedom that's, that's found in you. And so God, wherever someone's at this morning, God, I pray that they would, they would, they would respond and they would, they would come to you. And God, as we, as we turn from our time in the word to time, continued worship in, in, in song and in singing, God, I pray that our, our attention would continue to, to be solely on you that we can lift up our voices to you and, and praise and honor you and continue to focus on you this morning. God, I'm, I'm thankful for this time. I'm thankful for all who are here. I'm thankful for you sending your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.